Thanks for listening to What's the Big Idea, a class by J.R. Foresteros. Let me know what you think at Facebook, Twitter, or my website, jrforesteros.com. Enjoy the class. Yay! I told you last week this class was sort of an experiment. We're already proving that because I'm changing the syllabus. Uh, as, I was prepare- <laughs> as I was preparing this week, uh, I had to make a choice. There was, a, there was enough material that I figured we could either try to cram it all in and probably overstuff it this week and not even maybe finish everything or stretch the material out in two weeks. And so I figured better to uh, take our time and make sure that we all kind of are on the same page and there's not any confusion and not rush through everything. And so uh, basically what we're going to do, if you remember this whole class, the idea was taking a, a symbol from the ancient world and then comparing it to the way we talk about those same kinds of ideas today. So tonight we're going to be talking about the symbol of the sea in the ancient world, and we're going to save how we talk about those same kinds of ideas today for next week. So tonight's going to be all in the scriptures. Uh, you've got, we're going to go through tons and tons of, of Bible stories and try to get a, a good perspective on how the sea functioned as a symbol in the ancient world. And then next week we'll talk about things like existential despair and outer space and uh, aliens and those kinds of things. So that'll be next week. You might be wondering what those all have to do with each other. Well, we'll find out if they have anything to do with each other. Uh, or if I'm just imagining things. I don't think I am. So uh, last week we began by talking about uh, a term that I use called the symbolic universe. And that's the idea that we live in a world that's full of symbols, right? And we had, you know, the sheets that we were identifying, all the different logos and things like that. Uh, and how, uh, so, you know, if you remember on that symbol sheet, there were like the jack-in-the-box symbol. Anyone who had lived in any part of the United States that had a jack-in-the-box immediately was like, oh, that's jack-in-the-box. And everyone else was like, what is that creepy clown thing, right? And, and it was one of those things where if you, if you were from that culture that used that symbol, it was immediately obvious and recognizable. And if, and if you weren't, it was totally impenetrable. You would have no idea that was a fast food mascot or anything. Similarly, you know, the, the Chinese car dealership logo, even though they're one of the probably largest auto manufacturers in the entire world, none of us had a clue what it was because we're not in that culture. And so we talked about how, how symbols are really culturally bound and how and we explored how our culture uses symbols. So we looked uh, my favorite one, the one that I thought worked the best for illustrating all of that was the one where we use the phrase, the eagle has landed. And I asked you to, you know, in your groups to discuss what that meant. And only a couple of people said that it was about a bird, you know, landing on something. The, the literal meaning of the phrase. Almost everyone went to the symbolic uses we have for that phrase in our culture. Meanings that would be totally incomprehensible to anyone from outside of our culture or anyone born, you know, um, like 100 or 200 years ago. Uh, that just Those symbols just wouldn't have worked in the same way they do for us. But we all took it for granted. We all took it, well, yeah, that's what, that's what that means. It's obviously, a, you know, kind of a, a code that was developed by you know, NASA or by the Secret Service or whoever. And we didn't think anything of it. And so I suggested that the biblical world functions in much the same way. There are these, there are these deeply embedded symbols, these ways that they saw reality, these ways that they understood things to work. And the Bible never bothers to explain them because everyone assumed that the world operated the same way. Much like if you were reading a novel and the main character was flying from San Francisco to Tokyo... It wouldn't say, now what you need to understand is that the world is a globe, and so you can fly from one side all the way around it. If you read that in a novel, you'd be like, well, duh. duh. <laughs> Why is this wasting the words to say this? Like, everyone knows that. And, and when, we, when we tell stories today, you know, we, we don't ever stop to describe the way we think reality functions. Because everyone knows how reality functions, right? Everyone sees the world the same way. 
And so we, we encounter those same kind of things in the Bible. And so last week we ended by looking at that three-tiered universe that the, all of the peoples in the ancient world, not just the biblical authors and the biblical audience, but you know, Greeks and Romans and Babylonians and everyone, you know, that, the, that above the sky is heaven where the gods live, and then there's our world, and then under us is the underworld where the dead go. And that was how everyone thought the world worked. And, and you know, the scriptures look at that, all kinds of stuff. So tonight we're going to build on that a little bit. And we're going to go into specifically the symbol of the sea. This is a really, really important biblical metaphor. It, uh, it, it shows up all the time, and there's some really cool stuff that happens with it. So uh, what we're going to do is just to kind of give you an outline is we're going to look at the timeline of Israel's history uh, just very briefly. And this is something we're going to keep coming back to over and over and over and over again. So hopefully by, you know, 10 weeks from now when we're done with this class, this will be sort of second nature, kind of firmly ingrained in your head. You'll have a sense of, you know, the historical events if you don't already. And then we're going to look at the cultures around Israel and how they talked about the sea. And then we're going to compare them to what the Bible does with those metaphors. And we're going to see both some interesting similarities and then some really, really important differences. And where we're actually going to mostly be camped out is the differences. Because we believe that the Bible had something important and unique to say then... And that it still today has something important and unique to say. And so that's where, again, next week we'll be building the bridge into, okay, how do these things come into our world today? So, very brief timeline of Israel's history. Israel's story really begins uh, with a specific person in the person of Abraham. That is the beginning of the Israelite bloodline. That's where all of the people are, you know, it's Father Abraham had many sons. And, you know, if you grew up in church, you probably know that whole song, right? Like, Abraham's the father of Israel. And so it, Israel's story really begins in human history when God comes to Abraham, makes a covenant with him, and says, I want you know, I want to make your descendants the people through whom I, I rescue the world. And so Abraham has a couple kids. Uh, fast forward a little bit, and they end up in Egypt after a series of unfortunate events. Uh, Egypt's good for a little bit, but then they all get put in slavery, and they're in slavery for several hundred years. Okay, after that amount of time, a guy named Moses is chosen by God to lead them out of Egypt. This is the Exodus event, right, where the, the party in the Red Sea that we talked about if you've been coming out Sunday mornings, right, and then they wandered in the wilderness after they were freed from slavery in Egypt for 40 years. Sheila talked about this last week. They ate manna. This is given to them from heaven, right? And then that period ends when they enter into the land that God had promised to Abraham. Now, this land is, I should have written on the board, this land is actually called Canaan. Okay, so the people who live there are the Canaanites, and they're, the, the, the Canaanites is kind of a catch-all category. It's actually several different sort of tribal groups of people. They're all loosely affiliated. Um, they, you know, sometimes like each other, sometimes don't, but they're all in the land of Canaan. That's the land God promised to Israel, and so Israel takes that over. And then for a, a pretty long period of time, they are a loose confederation of tribes. There's 12 tribes that are based on the 12 sons of Jacob, uh, who's Abraham's grandson, and they all kind of... Again, our loose confederation, very much like uh, if you're an American history student, the Articles of Confederation set up a government where the states are basically sovereign, but they sort of have some loose political ties to each other, not like the federal government we have today. That was kind of like what the Book of Judges was like. So then that period ended with the establishment of the monarchy. Israel decided that they were tired of not having strong national security, and so they demanded that God give them a king. So they appointed a guy named Saul. Saul turned out to not be a particularly good king, and so he lost his throne to a guy named David. David is sort of the quintessential king. He's the best king of Israel, you know, man after God's own heart, things like this. David is the one who really established Israel's monarchy. 
David's son Solomon took over for him, expanded Israel's power even more. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was not very sharp uh, and easily influenced by his friends. And so he turned out to be a very bad political ruler, caused a civil war, and split the nation of Israel. Okay, so the ten northern tribes split off and became what we call the nation of Israel, and the two southern tribes became the nation of Judah. And so from not, you know, three generations after they began a united monarchy, they already have uh, two separate kingdoms. Okay? Uh, that lasts for quite a while. Uh, David is somewhere around a thousand. It's kind of hard to date, you know, when you get back that far, and they didn't keep particular, you know, they didn't keep the same calendar we do and things like that. So somewhere around a thousand is David. That's a pretty good rule of thumb. And so the Northern Kingdom exists until 722 BC. Again, this is you know a pretty good estimate, uh, and that is when an empire known as Assyria conquers the Northern Kingdom of Israel, and then the Southern Kingdom pays them off to not conquer them. So the southern kingdom of Judah gets to stay around a little bit longer. The capital city of Assyria was Nineveh, which is the, the city that, that features in the book of Jonah, which we'll get to in a little bit. We talked about it a little bit last week. So Nineveh is the capital city of the, of the Assyrian Empire. They're the ones who conquered Israel. The southern kingdom of Judah lasted, uh, all, you know, um, about 150 years longer until 586 B.C., and they were conquered by the Babylonian Empire. Um, which we're actually going to spend a good amount of time talking about them tonight. Uh, the Babylonian Empire uh, came in, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, uh, and completely decimated Ju uh, you know, the, the kingdom of Judah, all of their political infrastructure, all of their social infrastructure, everything. It left Israel as a total waste. And that was a period that was known as the Exile, which is actually one of the big things we're going to be covering later in this class, is how, how important and formative the exile was for biblical history. But what's really important and interesting about it for tonight is that none of what we call the Old Testament, well, I should say very little of what we call the Old Testament was actually written down until the exile. Now, why do you think that would be? Yeah, you're looking at this is a this is primarily an illiterate culture. You're saying, you know, less than 5% of the population could read and write. And so when they lived in their nations and everything was fine, they had stability and all that, they just transmitted their their stories and their scriptures orally like or like non-literate cultures do. And it was fine. That was fine. They didn't they had no need to write them down because no one could read them anyway. So they just, they just transmitted them orally, and it was like everything worked fine. So, you know, all the stories about all the stories about Adam and Eve and all the stories about Moses and, you know, uh, Joshua, like all, all of this was all just transmitted orally, and it was just kept in the communities. But then all of that was destroyed, decimated. All of the educated people were ripped out of Israel and taken into Babylon. And so now they were looking at this, this, this generation of educated people, this generation of people who had all of these oral traditions preserved. They were now looking at the very real potential of being the last generation that knew any of this stuff. Yeah. And so they were like, we better write this down. Right? And so what we get in, in the wake of the exile is the actual formation of what we now call our Old Testament where we really start to write these things down because that was the first time they needed to be written down. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, 
So what's really interesting about all of that is that you have, an, you have all of these texts that were written, and they, the, the outside pressures on them feature some particularly Babylonian themes. And try to put yourself in these people's shoes. Again, you're, you're, uh, you're your generation, right? You've got kids, maybe grandkids, right? And they have all, all of a sudden, been uprooted and put in a totally different culture. They're being sent to schools that are now no longer teaching your language, your religion, your culture. They're coming home and they're telling you the things that they've learned and it's all the kinds of things that this other dominant culture that's conquered you have taught. And you're watching your children grow up no longer as your culture, but as someone else's culture. You're watching them very slowly, very gradually adopt the traditions and the behaviors and the customs of the enemy, the conquerors. And so you can imagine why these Israelites made a very clear, concerted effort to preserve their culture. And this is the first time, this is, I don't think this is an overstatement, this is the first time in human history that a religion sort of became portable. Okay, up until this point, all religions, well, you know, the Babylonian religion, the Canaanite religions, the Greek religions, all of them, they were locally based. They were based around a temple, Right? And the, the priests and the practices and all of that kind of stuff. But when Israel made the, made the shift to a text-based religion, when they started writing all of these things down and you know, getting together and praying their prayers, not at the temple, which had been destroyed, but in their homes, uh, in little buildings that they could get the permission to use in all these places, all of a sudden, Judaism became a religion that could exist anywhere. And so that's actually what we see even by the time of Jesus when the temple has been rebuilt is the temple still plays an important role in Judaism in Jesus' day, but there's all kinds of Judaism that's happening all over the world. I mean, you have Paul, who is from Tarsus, who's considered, you know, he's, he's educated and he's, a, he's well-traveled and all that kind of stuff, and he's doing religion outside of Jerusalem. And, and for most other cultures, that was unthinkable. You couldn't do, you know, you couldn't do something like that. So, so when, we read, when we read the Old Testament, it's helpful to keep the, the background of Babylonian culture in mind because that, that was the pressure, that was kind of the pressure cooker that led to the, to the writing down of our text. Not, this is an important distinction, not the making up of the stories, right? The stories were all there, the traditions all existed, but the writing them down, they were, they were all oral traditions up until this point. So there, now there, there are some, you know, scholars and people like that who want to argue, like, basically none of this stuff ever even happened and it all got made up after the exile. That's, that's actually not very even defensible, okay? It's, it's that the exile provided the motivation for all of these things to be written down because if they hadn't been written down, they would have been lost. Uh, the oral culture, that, the, or, the, the system, the oral culture that preserved them had been totally decimated. And so they had to be written down. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Do you think the fact that one of the things by writing it down, the stories remain solid as opposed to growing? Uh, yeah. So that's a good question. The question is, you know, it, are, is the written record of them, does that make them more stable and less likely to be changed than the oral traditions? Um, for a literate culture, absolutely. You know, all of us. All of us can read and write. We've all probably played the telephone game, right? Where you sit in a circle and one person whispers and you pass it. And by the time it gets yeah. to the end, it's 
some goofy thing that doesn't make any sense at all. And yeah. When you say the original phrase, everyone laughs, right? That's because we are a literate culture. That's because we, we have basically taught our brains not to have to remember things because we can write them down. Uh, how many of you, I'm assuming, how many of us remember before we had cell phones? Probably all of us, right? Okay. Do you notice a marked difference in how many phone numbers you remember now versus when you didn't have a cell phone? Okay, yeah, we do, right? In high school, I had like probably 100 phone numbers memorized. And it was all my friends and we, you know, all that kind of stuff. Once we got cell phones, our brains didn't need to be able to do that anymore. And now I have my phone number memorized and my wife's phone number memorized because they're one number different. And that's it. <laughs> Everyone else, like if, I, if all cell phones just blew up, I would be totally lost about, you know, numbers. It's actually sort of the same thing. We, because there are non-literate cultures today that we can still study and how they pass on oral traditions, it is amazing how reliable oral traditions are um, the, because what you have to keep in mind is um, let's let's say we're all a community right and I'm the chief storyteller and I learned all the stories from you know probably my dad who learned it from his dad or whatever right well you all have also been hearing all of these stories your whole lives from the same storytellers and so if I get up and tell a story and I miss a detail or miss a beat or change some wording everyone's gonna be like whoa wait you know, you got you missed it. Um, so what we have found by studying the, the non-literate cultures of today is that oral tradition in non-literate cultures is actually incredibly reliable because of the because of the whole social structure that's in place to preserve it. And that's why that's why the exile was so traumatic, because that's what got destroyed was that was that social structure. And, and so now without that structure, the oral traditions were not solvent anymore. They were not reliable. They were not trustworthy. And that's why they had to be written down in a form that could be, you know, kept and copied and all of those kinds of things. So does that answer does that your question? Okay. So, yeah. So uh, you'll hear this a lot when people talk about the Old Testament, how it's all based on oral tradition, how unreliable that is and all that. And that's, that's just not true. Uh, that's not, like, oral traditions are exceptionally trustworthy. And that's even if you don't take into account the, the preserving power of the Holy Spirit working in all of this. So, say, yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So. Exactly. So even even without going to our confessional assurance, um, even if you just stick to like a purely scientific one, it works. And then you add in the fact that we actually believe in the Holy Spirit working in these texts and inspiring these texts. It's it's just not a problem. So, yeah, you get uh, Stan. Go ahead. I had I had heard somebody who worked on the study and listened to the oral modern oral. Mm-hmm replay and the missionary said it was it was like a tape. Yeah. The guy couldn't even start in the center of a tape. He can only start yeah. at the beginning and go all the way yeah. through it. Um, that was his job. His yep. job was to keep that tradition, keep that set of words and keep them perfect. Yep. Even to the point that he couldn't start in the middle. Right. And you had to start at the beginning and go You had to do the whole thing. Yeah. And you've experienced this, too. If someone's ever asked you, what's the lyric of that song? And you can't start in the middle of the song. You have to start at the beginning and sing all the way through to get to the word. You know, I mean, that we've all had that kind of an experience. And that's what that is. Um, so, yeah. Very good. Faith, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that it was important for them to write it down because the book of Daniel tells us that they took all the rich and nobility yep. back to Babylon. These were the people that were educated, right. that were intelligent and whatnot. They left the poor behind. The, and then they turn around and were decimating their culture because we know that 
Daniel was renamed, Ananias, Azariah, Mishael, yep. all. We know renamed, him better. yep. Renamed in Babylonian gods, and we know him better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yep. And we use that Babylonian yep. name. Yeah, exactly. And so you, I mean, hope, destroying the culture. hopefully you can feel that. You can feel the cultural pressure that would, that would drive them to record their culture in a, in a, in a more permanent way. That's, that's what we're dealing with here. And so, so what I want to do for a minute is look at the Babylonian culture surrounding them and also then look at the Canaanite culture that they were coming out of because there's some really cool stuff going on that will help us understand some of the biblical texts. So... How many of us are experts in Babylonian mythology? None of us. Uh, over there, yeah, in the back. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so here's what's really interesting. You, you actually see this in a lot of, and, and actually, as far as I can tell, most ancient, uh, ancient gods and goddess uh, structures, pantheons. Um, the chief god tends to be a thunder god. So I'm sure we all know who Thor is, thanks to Marvel, right? Thor is the Norse god of thunder slash lightning slash rain. Um, and that's th- what that all actually is. It, again, put yourself in a pre-modern world. That's a fertility god. You need rain and you need regular rain to have food, which is basically to stay alive, right? So that's why that – so again, Zeus, what does he do? He throws lightning bolts because he's a thunder god. Right? Jupiter, the same kind of a thing. This is because that was literally like the most important thing for these people, and so that was who they worshipped. Okay? Well, in the Babylonian or in the uh, yeah, in the Babylonian pantheon, Marduk is the chief god, and he is a thunder god. Okay, he's the he's the rain god. Alright? And the the creation story, we have it preserved in uh, in a, uh, on clay tablets, you know, and things like that. And we have enough of it that we can tell the basic format. Uh, if you've ever taken a mythology class and you've studied Greek or Roman mythology, it, it bears a lot of the similarities. So the Babylonians would say that in the beginning there were these two, there was a god and a goddess. The goddess's name was Tiamat, and she was salt water. I don't know how that works, but she, her, her, she was basically just salt water, and then her husband was fresh water. And when they, they gave birth to all of the gods, okay? And then one day, it was actually because the husband couldn't sleep because the gods were making all the, all, too much noise, uh, Tiamat and her husband decided to destroy all the gods. So they started a war with all of their children, which this is very common in mythology. You see this all the time. Okay? And the gods could not beat her. They were terrified. And then Marduk stepped up and he said, I will conquer her. If you make me the chief god. And they all said, this deal, fine. So Marduk went to battle against Tiamat. You had the, you know, the thunder god versus the, the seas, the, the, the um, you know, salt water. And he beats her, and he, he actually uses wind to force her mouth open, and then he shoots arrows into her heart and kills her. And he cuts her body in half, and he uses half of her body. I don't know if she has a salt water, but it's just salt water, right? But whatever, he cuts her in half. And half of her he puts up and makes the sky, and then half of her he uses to make the earth. Okay, and then he the, all of the all of the ancient gods and these things like the sea gods have like sea serpents as minions, basically whatever. And so Marduk takes all of the uh, the the you know sea serpents, sea monsters, all those things, and he imprisons them in the gates of the deep, which is like the underworld, right? If you remember what we talked about last week. So that's, that's the, and then that's, then they have the world, 
Yeah, that's how that's how that's how a Babylonian thought the world came to be. That was their creation story. Was that there was, you know, there were these water gods, water deities, and then Marduk, their chief god, the one who protects them, the one that they worship, all that, he did battle against the seas and cut them in half and created the world and, and is now the ruler of all the gods. That's their that's their story. Okay. Uh, now the Canaanite story is actually fairly similar. Does anyone know who the chief Canaanite god is? Yes, Baal. Some of you, some of you who have had more Old Testament background have probably heard that before. B A A L. Um, Baal is also a thunder god. He's also a fertility god. In fact, we're going to talk in a couple of weeks about when Elijah does a showdown with the prophets of Baal, and the way God shows that he is God and Baal is not is he doesn't let it rain for three years, because all the Israelites are worshiping a rain god, right? And and God basically says, okay, tell you what, I'm not going to give you any rain. And we'll see how long it takes your, uh, your little rain god that you're praying to. We'll see how long it takes to get rain. And then they wait three years and it never happens. And then that's set up for the sermon. Right? Some of you know the rest of that story. But uh, in, the, in the Canaanite origin, uh, creation story, you have a, a very similar kind of thing. The sea god is called Yam, 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 whatever you like. And it's the same sort of thing. Baal is sort of ruling everything, and Yam decides that he's going to challenge Baal, and so they battle. This one is, we actually have less of this preserved, so all we know is that they fight. And uh, instead of killing Yam, after he defeats him, Baal imprisons him in the seas. He basically confines him to the oceans. And then after he's finished conquering Yam, he has to fight a god named Mott, who is the god of death who rules the underworld. So he defeats the seas, and then he has to go down into the underworld, and he's actually temporarily defeated. And while the fertility god is dead, everything dies, and then he he comes back from the underworld, and everything comes back to life. And this is for the Canaanites. This is their explanation for the seasons. They say every year, Baal and Mok, the god of death, have to fight, and that's why everything dies, and then everything comes back. Again, if you've ever studied mythology, those kinds of things are... You know, you, you recognize that, okay, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Right, those, all that, whatever. So, um, so the seasons, yeah, the seasons are a result of this annual battle between Baal and Mott, the god of death. Right, and that's why things die and get cold and then come back to life. Uh, and then in, the, in, in all these cultures, you know, they have, I talked about how they have these various serpents and functionaries, uh, and Leviathan and Rahab are two names that the Bible gives to these sea monsters, sea serpents. And we actually have some ancient art, you can find them if you do a Google image search, that depicts them as having like seven heads and they're all real scary. It's all crazy. Now, who cares? I'm sure some of you are starting to wonder that, right? Why do we need to study mythologies of other cultures that are obviously not, like, right, right? Because... Again, these are the social pressures. This is a symbolic world that was, that was pushing on the original authors of the scriptures. And what we see is that these cultures, both the Canaanites and the Babylonians, and, and again, actually the Egyptians, like this is, this is pretty common in all these ancient Near Eastern mythologies, is that the world is, the world is a product of combat. Okay? That the most basic truth about the world is... A struggle for power. That that all everything only exists because your God that you worship battled and defeated these 
actively hostile beings, entities, that may in some sense still be out there wanting to destroy you. Okay? That's what, uh, that was their outlook. That was their outlook on life. So, I want to do... I want to do a little experiment with you. Um, go ahead and get back into your table groups. Um, and maybe you guys you guys can just kind of like crowd around. We'll just do two groups. Um, when, when scholars talk about culture, there are um, – they talk about – it's kind of useful to divide it up because culture is such a broad term, right? So they divide it into seven spheres. They say that there are seven spheres of things that comprise a culture. There's arts and entertainment. There's business. There's education. There's family, government, media, and religion, okay? Um, now, that you can write that down or not. It doesn't really matter. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to get into your groups. I'm going to give you about, about five minutes, and I want this side of the room to take those first three, arts and entertainment, business and education, okay? And I want this side of the room to do the next three. We'll leave religion off because we're kind of, all of them are kind of talking about religion, right? But do family, government, and media. And I, what I want you to do is imagine the kind of a culture, imagine what kind of activities or things would be going on in these spheres if a culture was based on this sort of combat mythology. If, if, if you thought the most basic fact of reality was fighting to survive, okay, then what would arts and entertainment look like? What would business look like? Right? What would family look like? In the, if you assume when you got up and looked out in the morning that the most basic fact was existence was a fight, it was a battle, that, that, it was, that it was a struggle, that it was mostly probably not going to work, but sort of by the skin of your teeth or the skin of your God's teeth, you know. So it's, it's just it's a creative exercise, but try to think about that, try to work on that a little bit. If you can think of some examples, that's great. Uh, but so do that for about uh, five or seven minutes, and we'll come back together and dive into the scriptures themselves. All right, I'm anxious to hear what you guys had to say. So let's start over here with these guys. Just give us a quick kind of, you know, bullet point, couple things from each each area. What would uh, would you do for arts and entertainment? Combat. Okay. Yeah. Arenas. Yeah. Lions and Yeah. Okay. Good. What about business? Okay. Education? Training in the way of weapons. Street smarts. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah, very good. All right. How about you guys? What about family? Father rule. Okay. And may value boys over girls. Okay. 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 Good. Uh, what about government? If there's lack of trust within the family, and there would it would mushroom up into you know a person okay. from a yep. family unit is going to be head of the government. Okay. And he would be the same thing, fighting with even those that he appointed, or not trusting them to report back to him. Mm-hmm. Good. Okay, how about media? That one was a fun one. <laughs> What'd you guys do for that? Not 
then there wasn't news media. It had to be spread by word of mouth. So there was a lot of whispering and gossip probably amongst families, amongst communities, towns, on out bigger. So whoever was in ruling would want to put up, if there was trouble, it certainly didn't want it to get out because he wants everybody to think that it's it, it just was a no-win yeah. situation. Good, good. It's yeah, it, necessary, right? Because the only way for the only way for a combat, I mean, the only way Marduk stayed king was because he ensured that the gods had security, right? And that 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 was how it went for the the king then over the the communities or over the the, the nation, how the, the fathers over the households and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was, it was that when, when it's all based on combat, when it's all based on power like that, uh, it, it gets very precarious. So, yeah, yeah, and when when we get when we get closer, uh, when we start talking more about Jesus uh, here in a few weeks, we'll come back to some of this. And when we talk about how Rome, you know, disseminated information, uh, and then like what what the Christians did with that concerning Jesus. Yeah, Steve. So another thing about media is you have to bring in the propaganda. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And in the ancient world, when you didn't have TV, when you didn't have film, and all of that, the propaganda was a little bit more basic, but it wasn't any less clever. Right, it was very, it was very interesting, and when you look at some of the ancient propaganda and stuff like that, so yeah, you have to include that, uh, particularly in this kind of a context. So, with all of that in mind, you guys did a great job, kind of creatively imagining what kind of a culture that would be. Then we need to ask: so the Bible is sort of being put together in this culture, right? All of these oral traditions are getting put into to text and written down and assembled and all of that, and so it's obviously trying to do something very different from that. And we want to look at how. How is it trying to do something different, and what different is it trying to do? So, uh, first we're going to look at Psalm 74. Uh, Now, the larger context of this particular psalm is the exile. Uh, And the songwriter describes what he feels like having been abandoned by God, being helpless while the Babylonians come into Jerusalem and destroy the temple and all of that. So I want to read for you. You don't have this part on your paper. I want to read for you the opening of the psalm, and then we'll get to what you have there on your paper. So the psalmist, and and one thing to keep in mind about the psalms is that they are Israel's hymn book. Okay, so these are songs that they would sing when they gathered to worship. That's what the book of Psalms is. So this is an actual hymn that was used, obviously, after the exile. Um, but it was, it was sung when they would gather for church. So here's what the psalmist says. Oh God, why have you rejected us so long? Why is your anger so intense against the sheep of your own pasture? Remember that we are the people you chose long ago. The tribe that you redeemed is your own special possession. And remember Jerusalem, your home here on earth. Walk through the awful ruins of the city. See how the enemy has destroyed your sanctuary. There, your enemies shouted their victorious battle cries. There, they set up their battle standards. They swung their axes like woodcutters in a forest. With axes and picks, they smashed the carved paneling. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the place that bears your name. They, then they thought, let's destroy everything. So they burned down all the places where God was worshipped. We no longer see your miraculous signs. All the prophets are long gone, and no one can tell us when it's going to end. How long, O God, will you allow our enemies to insult you? 
Will you let them dishonor your name forever? Why do you hold back your strong right hand, unleash your powerful fist, and destroy them? What emotions do you hear in that? What, what kind of stuck out to you? Okay, what else? Frustration. Okay. Okay, good. What else? Yeah, good. Yeah, that's what they're, they're craving rescue, right? They want some kind of redemption. So the psalmist envisions that rescue, surprisingly, maybe, in terms of creation theology. Okay, what he wants is for God to do battle against the forces of chaos and death. All right? Uh, the, he, wants, he wants God to assert his godness against the people who are uh, destroying his people. And profaning his temple and all that. So now let's read. This is this is the part that you have. And as we read, I'll read it, and you can you know follow along with me, or you can listen, whatever is better for you. But um, pay attention to the some of the echoes that you'll hear from some of uh, some of this stuff. Okay, so this is what he says next after he just said, you know, why are you taking so long? When are you going to do something? And then he begins his his direct plea. You, O oh God, are my King from ages past, bringing salvation to the earth. You split the sea by your strength, and you smashed the heads of sea monsters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan and let the desert animals eat him. You caused the springs and the streams to gush forth, and you dried up rivers that never run dry. Both day and night belong to you. You made the starlight and the sun. You set the boundaries of the earth, and you made both summer and winter. Now, what echoes did you hear in here of some of the surrounding culture? Anything? We talked about summer and winter. Uh huh. Yeah, and what's he saying? I mean, compared to compared to this. Yeah. 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 Yep. Which again is pretty radical for the cultures that are surrounding him. Right? Everyone else is saying, no, all, all this creation, this is, this is war among deities. And this is sort of the outflow of it. But what he's coming in and saying is, no, 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 some, you made summer and winter. You put the stars and the moon up there. You did those things. You, you did. You're God. Come back and prove that you are. Show, show all of these ignorant pagans who don't know any better, who are coming in and defiling all your stuff, show them who you are. That's what he wants, right? Did you hear the language about splitting the seas, mm-hmm. right, and crushing the, the seas, the sea monsters and all that? Right. So again, I mean, that's, so that's language that anyone in those cultures would have recognized. But what he is doing is making a specific, coherent statement saying, but, but it's, it's Yahweh, the God of Israel, who is God. Yeah, and there isn't, there isn't this combat kind of stuff going on. He's making everything. The exile started in 586, and they went there. So Babylon was conquered about 70, uh, 60 years after the exile. Multiple generations. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and so, yeah, so what happened was the, uh, the Persian Empire came and defeated the Babylonians. And so that's where you, uh, again, if you know biblical history, uh, if you have any sense of that, that's Darius uh, is the ruler of the Persian Empire. And he's the one that Nehemiah petitions 
uh, to be able to return and rebuild everything. And that's 70 years. Nehemiah actually, Ezra and Nehemiah go back and start rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the temple about 70 years after uh, it's destroyed. But then even after that, they're a vassal state. They're, it's very much puppet kings and, and that kind of stuff. And that goes on until the Maccabean Revolt, which was in 156 B.C. So hundreds of years. And the Maccabean Revolt is where we celebrate Hanukkah, right? If, if anyone knows you know, that, uh, where basically they took the temple back, they took Jerusalem back, they drove. At that point, it was the uh, Ptolemy Empire, it was the remains of Alexander the Great's empire, um, because the you know, empires kept conquering each other, and so Israel just kept shifting hands. And they were free for about a little over 100 years, and then Rome conquered them. And then that was it. So once Rome conquered them in 44 BC, there was not a state of Israel until uh, 48. Was that the reestablishment of Israel? 49? 48? So, yeah. So you can imagine there's, there's plenty of time for the song to be sung. And, and, and what you'll find, actually, even in Jesus' day, there was a strong sense that they still lived in exile. Even though they had a king, even though they had a temple, they were ruled by a foreign power, and therefore it was not, you know, it was not God's kingdom on earth. It was, you know, there were these other kingdoms of, of humans that were ruling them. And so uh, you had, like, uh, rabbis and Pharisees and people like that who still talked about living as though they were still in exile. Even... Right. Well, and, and the people who did, that's why they got so excited about Jesus. They thought, oh, fi- finally, finally. Right. And so that's why the disciples kept asking him, so is, is, is now when you're going to establish your kingdom? Is now when you're going to establish your kingdom? And what they were actually asking was, literally, are you going to kick everyone else out and be king? Right. And which, right, right, right. So, okay. So that's Psalm 74. Um, let's go to Genesis creation and uncreation. This is really interesting because you have a creation story that's being written down and they already have these other creation stories, right? They have the Babylonian one. They have the Canaanite one and it's all about combat. Listen to what Genesis does. You know, this, this is probably, you you know, this is a language probably familiar to most of you. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the first day. Then God said, let there be a space between the two waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And that is what happened. God made the space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heaven, and God called the space sky, and then evening and morning came, marking the second day. And then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so the dry ground may appear, and that is what happened. And then it goes, it goes on and on and on from there. So you can probably hear some of the similarities, particularly with the Babylonian story. You have the splitting of the waters, right? You have the, the, the using of half of them to make the sky and half of them to make the earth and all that. But there are some massive Massive differences here. Super important differences. Uh, The first one being that there's absolutely no combat at all. At all. Like not even even a little bit. 
Because as Jeannie pointed out earlier, there's no, there's no one to fight, right? It's God, and that's it. And so all God does, rather than combat, we're getting command, right? It's let there be, and there was. Let there be, and there was. Let there be, and there was. There's, no, there's not even a, like a microsecond of hesitation in creation to obey the commands of God. Let there be, and there was. Let there be, and there was. And that goes on and on and on throughout the, seven day, uh, the six days, right? And then we get the, the seventh day of Sabbath. This is, this is the, in my mind, the most profound observation of Genesis 1, at least for its time. Because everyone around them was telling creation stories that were founded in combat. Everyone around them was saying the world is fundamentally hostile towards humanity. Life is, is practically a happy accident. Right? And, and we hang on by a thread. And you can imagine... You can imagine why they would think that. You can imagine why they told stories that looked like this. Life expectancy is very low. Infant mortality rates probably 50%. One out of every two babies born dies before it even has a chance to grow up. And then, then once you're growing up, there's all manner of other ways to die, right? Um, your, uh, your seasons are very fickle, right? And if you don't get rain, one, I mean, one year's worth of rain... That doesn't come. If you have one bad year, your whole village is wiped out, right? And so you can see how people would come to the place where they would believe life is, life is maybe an accident. Life is maybe not, like the, the, the world is not conducive to life. You can see why people would think that. And so we get all these stories surrounding Israel of people saying, yeah, like the world sort of is out to get us. And then in the midst of all of that, you have a totally different creation story being told. It is no wonder they behave so badly with their their moral, yeah. pra- immoral practices yeah. and whatnot. Why not? Might as well do what Why I not? Do. Yeah. yeah. But you know, it doesn't make any difference. Wasn't that before, you know, in the time of Noah, people lived a lot longer. Mm-hmm. You know, and after the flood and God wiped it all out and started over, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, and you know, by this point, by you know, by 586 BC, Noah is at minimum two thousand, three thousand years ago. Right. So you've had you've had two thousand ish years of this hostile, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, so again, it, to me, this is what's so captivating about Genesis 1, is this, this strong affirmation of the basic goodness of the world. You know, every day, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. That's, that's not, that, that is a radically countercultural statement in the world, that, the world that surrounded Israel. To say that... It was good. Right. Yeah, to say that the world is good. Once it was good, but now we need to take mess. Right, well, yeah, and we're going to actually go there right in a second, right? Um, because, just because the world is not hostile towards life, just because God is not hostile towards life, 
Just because God is not battling with other deities to keep life safe doesn't mean that life is not in danger, right? And that, that's what we see in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, which we call the flood story, right? And so uh, without too much setup, basically the world, you know, people have spread out over the world, they've, they multiplied, and all of them are sinful. No one is following God except for one guy and his relatively small family, you know, three kids. And so God comes to him and says, we're going to start over. Build a boat. <laughs> I'm going to put some animals on it. Here we go. And so what I want to read to you is, is the flood story. And again, listen to how this universe is, is kind of working. Um, it says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month on the 17th day of the month, on that day. So this is everything's already on the boat. right? The boat's sealed up. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heaven were opened. And the flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased, and they bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters swelled and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters swelled so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The, mountain, uh, the waters swelled above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Now, this is where you can really start to see the difference in how we understand the sea and how the ancient peoples understood the sea, right? Um, because for, for an ancient reader, what was going on in this text was uncreation. You know, because remember, there was water above and water below, and what's happening here is the, the, the gates that God put in place are being cracked. I mean, he's just... He's opening them up, and the water's rushing back in, and it's, it's undoing all of that careful ordering that was done in those six days. So by the time you get to the end of Genesis chapter 7, the world looks exactly like it did in Genesis chapter 1, which is that there's water, and there's God hovering over the surface of the water. And the only difference is this little bitty boat with a few, relatively few, heartbeats on it. And that's all that's different this time. And then, look what happens in, in chapter 8. But, that's one of the best verses in the whole Bible. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed. And the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters gradually receded from the earth. Now, there's something that we miss here because uh, English and Hebrew are two different languages. In Hebrew, the word for wind is the same as the word for spirit. There's the same word. Okay? And so in Genesis 1, if you want to flip back over there, um, it says, When God began to create the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, an ancient Hebrew person could have just as easily read that, and a wind from God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And for them, it would have been the same thing, saying it was the God's spirit or God's wind. It, you know, that's whatever. Same, potato, potato, the same word. So when it says in, verse, in chapter 8, verse uh, 2, God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided, they would hear a strong echo of Genesis 1-2 there. That here again, we have all water and God above it, and then the wind of God or the spirit of God is blowing over the water, and that's, that's the creative movement. 
And so what they're seeing here is, is you know, the, 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 the floodgates close and the, the waters recede and earth emerges. That, that They're actually seeing this as a recreative act. That God is actually reestablishing creation. And it's, it's what's happening in all of them is the seas are being restrained and, 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 and boxed in. Because the sea is that that represents death and destruction. The deep, the, the you know, the... Right? That's all, that's what that symbol is. Even though, even though in the scriptures it's not a god, it still represents death. And again, you can imagine why. Because in this culture, they didn't possess technology that enabled them to sail more than, you know, a few hundred feet offshore with any kind of safety. Right? They had to deal with flooding and all these kinds of uncontrolled natural occurrences. So the sea was always a place of danger for them. Uh, we talked about that with Jonah last week, right? Um, speaking of which, I think we have time to do Jonah real fast. Just a couple of observations. So um, we, we read Jonah last week, we read Jonah too, but uh, what happens in Jonah, this is set, um, Jonah is set somewhere, somewhere around the fall of the northern kingdom. Jonah is a prophet of the northern kingdom, and so their big, you know, their big bad guy is Assyria, right? That's the, that's the, the, the big enemy to the north. I mean, if you, you know, imagine Cold War, how everyone thought about Russia, right? That's kind of how Jonah would have felt about Nineveh and Assyria. And then in Jonah 1.1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, Go and preach my judgment to the Ninevites, because they are greatly wicked. And instead of going to Nineveh, which if you can imagine a map and put Israel right in the middle, Nineveh was like over here. Jonah gets on a boat bound for Tarshish, which is actually, we think, probably modern day Spain. So that's like way probably like over here, right? (laughs) So like literally that would be like as far as anyone in that world could have imagined from Nineveh, right? That's, I mean, that's like the edge of the, the known world. That's like as far in the opposite direction as he could possibly go. So obviously, he does not want to go to Nineveh, right? And so he gets out on this boat on the sea, and then a wind from God sweeps across the surface of the water, summons a storm, and it's so bad that these seasoned, salty sailors are terrified for their lives, and they can't figure out what's going on. Uh, again, in a port, in a boat, you're probably looking at sailors from all different cultures, right? Anyone who can figure out how to sail a ship. And they're all praying to any god they can think of, right? Trying to figure out who made what god mad that's got the sea all riled up, because it's obviously bad enough that it's not a natural storm. They can't figure it out. None of their prayers are working. They find Jonah asleep in the bottom of the boat. They could drag him up to the, and they're like, hey, pray to your God. Maybe it'll work. And he won't because he doesn't want to, right? <laughs> and so they draw straws, basically, right, to find out who it is. And it all, all signs point, it's Jonah's fault. Jonah's the one that did something to make some God mad. So they finally force that. And like, who are you? And he says, well, my name's Jonah, and I'm a prophet of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea. And they're like, well, can you do something? And he's like, nah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, if you throw me overboard, that'll work. And you can imagine why they don't want to, right? Because he just told them it's his God that's doing all of this, and he's a prophet of that God. You don't go around throwing God's prophets in the water if you 
don't want to make those gods mad. So they try anything they can. Finally, they have no other choice, and they agree to throw Jonah into the sea. And so for them, this was the end. We talked about this last week, right? But this was the end of Jonah's story because for, for an ancient person, the sea was death. Right? It was uncontrollable. It, it was the thing, again, every, think about everyone but Jonah, right? Everyone but Jonah, their God had either killed the sea or battled it into submission and kept it locked up and caged up, but it was a dangerous, death-bringing thing. You don't mess with it. And so they throw Jonah in, and that's it. He's, you know, the language that's used there is he's dead. He goes down in, and he's, he's the seaweed wraps around his head. You remember that we read last week, and, and he's taken into the gates of, of the sea, right? And he's, in, and he's in the underworld before God brings him back up. And what Jonah experiences in the language that he's using in Jonah 2 is nothing less than resurrection. God is bringing him back. And so that's, again, why Jesus says, when they demand a sign from him, he says, the only sign you'll get from me is the sign of Jonah, which is, after three days, you know, resurrection. So that's, and, and again, we don't, <laughs> I mean, for us, what, you know, what's at the bottom of the ocean? Sand, shells, pirate ships, right? <laughs> but we know, I mean, it's, it's a seabed, right? We even, you know, we've all seen Little Mermaid and Little Crab singing under the sea. Yeah, right? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's what's at the bottom. You go down far enough, you might have to get a submarine or whatever, you know, a scuba tank or whatever, but you can go to the bottom of the ocean and find cool stuff down there. Right, maybe weird fish and whatever, but like it's 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 not um, it's not mystical. It doesn't mean it's safe necessarily, right? We you know there's dangerous stuff, but it's 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 not mystical. It's just you know healthy respect for it. For the ancient people, what was at the bottom of the ocean? Okay. The, the gates of hell were at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> right? You know, <laughs> to throw someone in there was death, and if you went down far enough, death. Death was at the bottom of the... That was, you know, and that's just so different from the way we see the world. So when we read Jonah gets thrown in the ocean, we're like, well, I mean, that's bad, I guess. But we don't, we don't feel the, the same weight of, of it being death for him. Um, and, and, and I think a lot... I always, I'd always miss the resurrection stuff, you know, until, until it was pointed out, you know, to me. So now what's fascinating about the book of Jonah, because I don't think we're going to come back there probably too much, but... The question that, that if you're reading this story for the first time, if you've never heard the story of Jonah before and you're an ancient reader experiencing it, you're wondering to yourself, what could possibly be worse for Jonah than death? What is so bad that he's doing everything he can to escape his God? And, and ultimately, when he can't escape his God, he's like, throw me in the water, which is basically saying, kill me. I would rather die than blank, right? Um... Now, anyone, does anyone know at the end of Jonah what he actually ends up telling us? What is actually worse for him than death? Yep. Yep. What's worse for Jonah than death is living in a world where his enemies are forgiven. Because what happens is he ends up <laughs> reluctantly going to Nineveh. He preaches the, it's, it's in, sermon, in Hebrew, it's a four word sermon. It's 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, be judged, be condemned. Four words. And that's it. No, like, unless you repent or not. He doesn't even say, this is the God that's going to do it. Right? He just says, 40 days and you're going to be destroyed. Period. Walks out of the city. And he goes and sits because he's going to wait to see if in 40 days they get destroyed or not. 
And the city repents. The king, everyone, all the way down. They even put sackcloth, which is a sign of repentance, on the animals. Okay, which is way overboard, but they were real serious about repenting. They really didn't want to get destroyed. And God forgives them, like God does. And in chapter 4, if you want to read it later this week, Jonah says, this is why I didn't want to come. Because I knew what kind of God you were. I knew that you were slow to anger and quick to forgive. And I knew that if, I'm basically saying, right, I knew if there was even the teeniest little chance that the Ninevites would, would repent, that you would forgive them, and I, I didn't want to live in a world where the Ninevites got forgiveness. That's how much he hated them. Each. So that's Jonah. Um, any questions about that? I want to I want to look at a couple places where Jesus interacts with the seas. Yeah, Mike, go ahead. I don't know if it's a sermon or where I heard this, but I understood somewhere that when Jonah was spit up by this fish, he probably looked like a ghost. He was, it was all oh. white, and so when he showed up in Nineveh, they thought he was, you know, really some kind of a specter or something. Oh, yeah. huh, interesting. Huh, I'd never heard that before. Yeah, I don't know. I did it for like interesting. Yeah, for some reason they listen to him, he, he right? Freak. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Hmm. Well, he's a freak if he came up out of the, out of the, out of the sea. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, by the way, I probably some of you have been wondering what that picture is. Uh, this is one of my favorite paintings. It's called Chaos, and it's by a Russian painter named, I'm going to try this, uh, Ivan Konstantinovich uh, Ivazovsky. <laughs> I just call it Chaos. Um, it's from 1841, and I, what I really like about it, and it's, just, it's just beautiful. You can see kind of the idea of the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the water, and it's, it's a depiction of Genesis 1-2. Um, I just wanted the class to be visually interesting and have something a little better than my drawings. So, um, my comical mind, it looks like Bullwinkle the Moose. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Looking out across the ocean. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, let's look in the New Testament a couple places. So, so what you're going to see now, we've kind of been looking at different ways the sea has, has uh, been sort of a character in some of the stories, right? And how for an ancient person, the sea, just when you heard sea, you thought of like death and danger and chaos and it's sort of like hostility towards life. Um, so... Here's a couple of probably relatively famous stories of Jesus interacting with the sea. You probably have heard them before. But in Mark 4, verse 35, says this. As evening came, Jesus says to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat with his head on a cushion, and the disciples woke him up, shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind, and he said to the waves, Silence, be still. And suddenly the wind stopped, and there was a great calm. And he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man, they asked each other, that even the wind and the waves obey him? Now, Kind of an obvious question, maybe, hopefully, at this point in the class. But why does he rebuke them for their little faith? What are they afraid of? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. See, and see, this is, this is the problem. It says lake, right? But this is the Sea of Galilee. And for them, it was, it was no different than the ocean. 
Okay, this is a this is this is a, a place of danger for them. Um, and again, we know that at least four of the disciples were fishermen, right? Which were used to being out on this very sea, and so it was bad enough to be terrifying to them. They they are literally afraid of death, right? And so Jesus rebukes them. He says, you should have trusted me. And then what they marvel at is that the waves obey him. Because the waves didn't obey anyone. Right? Even, I mean, even in, even in these stories from these other cultures, the sea didn't obey. It was beaten into submission. Or killed. Right? So the fact that Jesus gets up and he's like, knock it off! And it does. Is, is truly world shattering for them. I mean that go ahead Jeannie, yeah. What is amazing to me is that at this point in history they had access to the scriptures. Mm-hmm. They had access to Genesis. Mm-hmm. You know, and reading some of the going to the temple and mm-hmm. hearing the bread and that sort of thing. After reading this and knowing that I guess at this point they still had not correlated the fact that this was the creator. Right. So of course he's gonna right. be able to control right. what and you can hear that because they say this. Like, who is this? They haven't put it together. Yeah. This is the creator of the sea. That's why the sea obeys. Right. They have, you're exactly right. And actually, you'll notice uh, this is in Mark 4. This is relatively early in Jesus' journey with the disciples. And, and if you think about it, uh, when Jesus calls his followers, he does not say, hey, I'm the incarnate word of God. I have come to die for the sin of humanity. Follow me. He just says, follow me. And they're like, okay. That's, that's all the information they have is basically that he's some kind of a teacher, right? And so there's this, there's this process of things like this where they keep going, you know, something's not right about this guy. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? How come every time demons see him, they fall on their knees and say, son of the most high God, you know, quit, leave us alone. Right? In fact, immediately where they're going in this story Right? They're going across the lake, but when they get across the Sea of Galilee, they're in a region called Gennesaret, or Gerasene, and they pull up on a shore that's near some caves that serve as tombs for the, the Gentile villages that are the non-Jewish, on the non-Jewish side of the lake. And a man who is demon-possessed comes out of the caves. He's been living among the tombs, and uh, he falls in front of Jesus, and he's like, Son of the Most High God, why are you, like, leave me alone! And they basically, and, and Jesus is like, well, we're going to have to take care of this, obviously. And they beg and beg and beg him not to be driven out, whatever that means, where, where, wherever you do with demons when you exercise them, right? And so Jesus seems to sort of comply with them. And in a really weird little twist in the story that confounds commentators all over the place, right? Uh, he, he, he's like, well, okay, you have to leave this guy, but you can go into these pigs. And so they go into the pigs, and then the pigs rush into the sea. And it's it's weird, right? But what what's what what helps a little bit is that uh, the scriptures call the demons actually calls the word it uses as unclean spirits. And that's the that's the Greek word that's used there. Unclean is a Jewish designation, right? They have clean things and unclean things. So you eat kosher, it's clean food. Pigs are unclean animals. So you have unclean spirits. That go into unclean animals, and then they go where? Into death, into chaos, into evil, right? Which is where apparently they would feel right at home. And the town was out all of its bacon and pork chops. 
So, again, it's still kind of a weird little story, but there is this, like, strong correlation of unclean spirits, unclean animal, into the realm of evil and chaos, right? So, um, that's that's all... Again, you just see how the, the sea is always right there at the edge of the story, kind of functioning like that. Um, and then the other story that's really interesting is the other, uh, the other calming of the storms, which is just a few chapters later in Mark. Matthew moves it a little bit further, but it says, Jesus insisted that his disciples... Now this, again, so actually what's happened here, there's been, there's been a few more things that have happened in between this. Uh, Jesus has just received word that his cousin, John the Baptizer, has been executed. And so he goes off on his own to pray. This is after he's fed the 5,000. So he's been teaching all day. He does this miraculous feeding. And then he gets this word and he's like, I got, I got to, like, I just got to get away and kind of process all this. Right. So he sends the disciples on ahead of him. And he's like, I'll catch up with you later. Okay. So it says, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head back across the lake to Bethsaida while he sent the people home, the people that he had just fed. Okay. After telling everyone goodbye, he went up in the hills by himself to pray. Late that night, the disciples were in the boat in the middle of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus was alone on the land. So he's like walking around the sea. Uh, He saw that they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and the waves. And about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus, he decides to help them out, came toward them walking on the water. He intended to go, I don't know why he's intending, I guess he was just going to take a shortcut and cook them breakfast or something. Um, he He intended to go past them. When they saw him walking on the water, they cried out in terror, thinking that he was a ghost. Why would they think that? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, I mean, yes, yeah, so it's, it's really weird that someone's walking on the water, but keep in mind, they're also on the sea. This is the place of evil, right? Yeah. And so if you see something walking towards you, it's probably not good, <laughs> right? I mean, that, that, would be, that would be their basic assumption, sort of like... If you're in a creepy basement and your flashlight starts flickering, it probably means there's a monster down there, right? We all have that same kind of, Um, But Jesus spoke to them at once and said, don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. Then he climbed into the boat and the wind stopped. They were totally amazed for they they still didn't understand the significance of the, the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. Um, so again, in Mark, Mark's disciples have a really, really hard time getting it. Um, it's actually a couple more chapters before uh, they're at a town called Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus is like, hey, what's the buzz? Like, what are people saying about me? And they're like, oh, some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're John the Baptist come back from the dead. Other people think you're a prophet. And he's like, well, who do you think I am? And as a reader of Mark's gospel, if you're reading it for the first time all the way through, you're sort of like nervous because they, you think it, they don't have a clue. You know, they're still in that who is this guy phase, right? And then Peter blurts out, you're the Messiah. You're the son of God. Like, whoa, Peter finally got something right. You know, the disciples finally got something right. Good job, guys. Um, But here, like, you can see, like, they're they're still having a really hard time putting all of this together about who exactly this guy is. Um, And what I think is just really, again, fascinating is that Jesus is walking on water demonstrates his total mastery over the created world. You know, that, that any person would be able to walk on the surface of the sea demonstrates um, that they are, the, like kind of what Jeannie was saying earlier, like they, the, really the only explanation is that they're creator of that sea, 
You know, there are no stories of Marduk walking on the sea, of Baal walking on the sea. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, he's he's trampled it all down. Like it, it doesn't. It's it's so um, it's so controllable by him that he can walk on it. You know, that's that's a right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's again, that's it. That's an. It, we have two thousand years of knowing Jesus rose from the dead, so that we're kind of like, yeah, 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 it's Jesus, of course. But like, try try to put yourself in their shoes, where this they don't have the story of the resurrection, they don't have any of that, and yet here is this person who's demonstrating in relatively spectacular ways that he is the Lord over everything, including life and death. You know, and and I I can have a little bit of sympathy that it's taking them a while to figure it out because that's a that's a big thing to get your mind around. You know, again, we have the luxury of 2,000 years of celebrating Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That just it makes it easier for us, I think, than it did for, for some of them. Um, so I want to wrap up with a couple of concluding thoughts. The, the big takeaway, I know we did a ton of stuff tonight, a ton of information. Um, but the, the, big, the big takeaways are that the, in the world of the scripture, there's the stripping away of that sense of a world based on combat. And replacing it with, with a world based on God's divine command, you know, let there be. And we're going to talk a lot more next week about some of the implications of that, right? But um, what, what we're really seeing with this symbol of the sea and with how it's used in the scriptures versus how it was used in the other cultures of the time was that the Bible was telling a different story. Not a story that the world is fundamentally against you, that life is precarious, and that ultimately there's probably not really a lot of hope. Instead, it's saying, no, you are valuable, you matter to God, and you can trust this God with your life. You know, that, that in fact, by the end of the scriptures, we get to the fact that ultimately this God is the God over even death. Um... I was going to save it till next week, but uh, every time I teach Revelation, I, I, have a, I do a class on that. Uh, we get to Revelation 21, which is the vision of the new heaven and the earth, and we're going to do this more next week. But everyone always gets really upset uh, because it's after death has been defeated and everything's been cast in the lake of fire and the new heaven is coming down, you know, and heaven and earth are becoming one and God is living with his people. And there's this little, there's this little phrase that always gets everyone so sad. And it says, I saw the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the sea was no more. And the, 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 the lament is always, but I love the beach. And I say, I do too. And so they want to know, why is, why, why is there no ocean in heaven? Like, what's that all about? Why, why in the new world is there no sea? That's such a weird little detail. Well, you tell me, what is, it, what is that really saying? Yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, that's see, That's, you're going to have to worry. I'm sure there actually probably will be beaches in heaven. I hope so, because I love them. <laughs> but yeah, what it's really saying there, and again, what any ancient reader would have immediately understood, right, was that there's no more evil. There's no more death. All of those things have been, they're part of the old creation that's passed away, and now all things have been made new, and they're not there anymore. And so what we're going to do next week um, is we're going to look at, we're going to, I'm going to, I'm working on some video clips of some, some recent films. We're, we're going to actually look at Moby Dick. Anyone read Moby Dick? Okay, a few of you. Oh, good. Well, then you'll be able to help with the discussion. Um, it's okay. 
Uh, I've only read I've only read the Wikipedia of it. So uh, <laughs> now we're gonna we're gonna look at some we're gonna look at some novels. Uh, obviously, excerpts of novels. We're gonna look at hopefully some some movie clips and uh, some quotes from some famous thinkers from the past couple hundred years. And what I want to kind of do is basically the same thing we did with Babylon and Canaan. I want to look at what are some of the dominant stories that are being told today. What is the world that's being communicated to us by the dominant culture? And how, um, how is the Bible speaking to that culture also? Um, and so I think it's going to be fun. Uh, it'll be, again, I wanted to do that this week, but as you can tell, we went up right up to end. So what I'd actually, I've made some homework for you. It's obviously optional because this class isn't for credit or anything. It's for credit in heaven or something. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, I gave you four scriptures. And actually, it's kind of three scriptures because it's basically Exodus 14 and 15. But if you, you can break them up. And all of these scriptures uh, use the sea in some way, uh, kind of like we've been looking at it tonight. And so I just gave you some questions. And if you take time this week, read these passages, maybe read them two or three times a piece, and just pay attention to some of those questions. You know, what role is the sea playing? How is God described? And what images and metaphors are used there? How does God interact with the sea? You know, what's going on there? Um, and then, you know, is there anything surprising or noteworthy? What sticks out to you? We'll begin next week by kind of talking about those, those questions, talking about those passages. But this is, this is to help you practice seeing these things. You know, I basically read and told you a bunch of stuff tonight, but these are for you to kind of practice looking at some of these things on your own. Um, they're going to be very similar to what we saw tonight. Uh, but then next week, we'll really look at uh, our culture today and see where this idea of sea, it's not sea anymore. And again, like I've already told you this before, but I think the way we talk about space a lot of times today can, can really be compared to how the ancient peoples talked about the sea um, and then some other stuff like that. So, uh That'll be, I, I think next week will be really fun also. So are there any final thoughts or questions before we wrap up tonight? Okay, well, thank you guys. I, as always, I appreciate your time. Uh, let me close this in prayer, and then uh, we can adjourn till Sunday. Uh, God, thank you so much for the chance that we've had to explore your scriptures, to, to look at the good news that you've been proclaiming since the beginning, which is that, uh, the world is, is very good and that you created life on purpose and that you love us and that ultimately the world is not against us, that you are constantly working, that your spirit is still moving over the surface uh, of the waters today, moving in our lives and shaping us and calling good out of the chaos. Uh, we're thankful that we, through your son Jesus, have been invited into that creative movement. And we ask that this week you would open our eyes and our ears as we read your scriptures. As we look around at our world, we would see the people who uh, do not know that you love them, that do not know that there is a way out of this life of sin and death and into a life that you have offered us that you call the true life, the life that we were created for. Uh, thank you that chaos and death are not the final word for us, but that through your son Jesus we can experience resurrection and new life. And we pray all of these things in his name tonight. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Have a great night.